All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, author of the book Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. All right, you guys. I got a pretty great institute. The Libertarian Institute. But I admit that this guy's got the best institute in the Libertarian movement. It's Jeff Deist from Mesa's. Welcome back. How you doing, man? Hi, Scott. I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing great. Listen, um, on behalf of everyone in my audience because none of them own banks. We are all very worried about what's going on with the economy. Is it booming? Is it busting? Is it both? And what in the world are we supposed to do? Yeah, I would say it's busting, but it's not so easy to see because we measure these things in GDP. And GDP can be juiced. GDP is just a number. And so if government creates a lot of spending through stimulus, fiscal or monetary, then GDP number go up. And that gives the impression that the economy is growing. Also, we're in this very, very strange time, Scott, where there's a huge disconnect, a labor disconnect. There's lots and lots and lots of jobs going begging. But there's also increasing poverty, reduced savings rates and more people concerned about keeping their jobs. So I think what happened is that COVID convinced a lot of people, the COVID shutdowns and lockdowns, convinced a lot of people to just sort of stop trying. Maybe they were a little older in life, and they said, you know what, I'm just going to limp along till I'm 62 and a half or wherever I can begin to collect Social Security. I hadn't planned to collect it till 65 or 67, but, you know, I'm just a little too far outside of the envelope now for working. Uh, there's probably a lot of young people who got a little bit lost during COVID and maybe now they're just spinning their wheels, uh, going to perpetual college throughout their twenties, collecting degrees, for example, um, living with a bunch of roommates and traveling more doing things other than just, uh, you know, going straight into the job force. And there's probably a lot of people who are maybe, uh, disabled, but still able to work who, who gave up on working. There's probably a lot of stay at home spouses who gave up on working. So I think, we're still in this weird time where the economy's not great, but at the same time, employers desperately need people. It's, it's very unusual uh, in that sense. But the idea that it's a booming economy, I, I think, is completely false. It's like saying that you are a, a great athlete because, you know, you stayed up all night and went running in the morning thanks to your meth habit, right? I mean... That, that's 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 what we're living on. It feels very much to me like we are living on the fumes of a juiced-up economy. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, this really seems to be a thing, right? So we have the typical boom-bust cycle that we always go through with the inflationary money system. But because the lockdowns force so many people out of work, that's led to what you're describing here is this extra upward pressure on wages, right? Right as the rest of the economy is collapsing, and yet, like from the Fed's point of view and your college professor's point of view, 
It's upward pressure on wages that's causing the inflation that is the target of their clampdown. It's amazing to read the business press where, you know, um, there was a piece in Bloomberg News that uh, Kennedy's producers had sent me before I went on there. And you get deep enough in the article and they say, we're trying to force 1.3 million people out of work. And we think that if we can raise interest rates enough to ruin the economy bad enough, that 1.4 million people at the bottom of the wage scale, presumably, get forced out, then then there won't be, then inflation will be licked. That's when the upward pressure on wages will have been defeated and then we can start getting back to work again. And I know that the uh, Austrian <laughs> takes a bit different than that. Well, that's one way to curb inflation is have everybody really poor and unable to buy anything. Right. No one I can mean, take yeah. out a loan because there's nothing uh, to invest in because everything is busted, right? I mean, that's that's perverse. And there's th- look, it's not true that unemployment needs to rise to quell inflation. We're, we're, this is a, a misapprehension. These are two very different things. What matters in an economy is not employment. What matters in the economy is productivity. It, and productivity means that some businesses are successful and they earn a profit. They make more than they spend. That profit goes into capital accumulation in what we call CapEx in the accounting world, capital expenditures. So they create more factories, more equipment, better factories, better equipment, better processes. In other words, they invest in creating whatever good or service they create, better, faster, cheaper. And so the natural the natural result of all that, a profit, capital accumulation, capital expenditure, is actually deflationary. Absent government and monetary intervention, we should expect prices to be falling over time. We should expect things that were once luxuries, like an automobile or a second automobile or airplane travel, for you know, 20th century examples of things that used to be basically for the wealthiest people in society that became standard fare for middle-class folks because of the natural deflationary pressures of market competition and capital investment. Okay, that's what we should be expecting in a healthy economy. So how many hours you work and how much you earn and whether you need one job or two jobs, you know, whatever it might be, um, all of that is a separate question from how productive the economy is. So they've created this idea that when the economy's booming, you know, that's inflationary. So we need for the economy to be stagnant. Well, the, the, uh, whether something is booming or busting in the real sense is, is about profit and capital expenditures. It's not about unemployment or GDP or other numbers which can be juiced. But the, the irony here is that the central bank thinks that a little bit of inflation is a good thing. As a matter of fact, it's necessary. We need 2% inflation every year. That's our target. But boy, oh boy, when it gets to be 9 or 10, as they admit to now, I'm with Peter Schiff. I actually think it's more like 15 if you were to calculate it using the, the met- methods we used to use in the 70s and 80s. But nonetheless, let's just say it's eight, 9 or 10. Um, well, that's bad. So we got to quell that, but we need a little bit of it. So that seems like an odd position to take. But the idea that raising interest rates which the central bank can't really do. They can try to do that, but they have a hard time in the, in the market for loanable funds to actually make that happen. It takes a little while. It's not just like a, a switch that you flip. 
Okay. But as interest rates go up, that that in and of itself does not at all mean that prices would necessarily drop. Now, for big ticket items, houses and cars, those are the main things for which most folks borrow money or unfortunately college, but we'll touch on that maybe later. Uh, Yeah, uh, on those uh, those big ticket items, the cost of borrowing does exert a downward pressure on on prices as the interest rate goes up. But for the most part, for consumer goods, for retail goods, for groceries, for example, uh, for all kinds of household items, when interest rates go up, all that does is, well, first of all, it knocks out or bankrupts or, or makes insolvent the, the more marginal firms in an industry because they have a lot of borrowing, a lot of debt. Uh, they can no longer service that debt. They're not as good or efficient at making money uh, to pay their debt. So generally speaking, as interest rates rise, the, the worse, the, the, the less uh, capable companies in an industry go under. So that actually reduces supply and tends to increase prices. It also means that for companies to borrow, they have to pay more. They have to put more money into interest payments and less money into uh, expenditures, capital expenditures, hopefully, that that increase the productivity with which they produce whatever good or service. So, you know, it, it seems like it's this article of faith. Well, you know, to, to quell inflation, we need to raise interest rates. And I don't think that's actually true. I think that is two things which often happen in tandem, but correlation is not necessarily causation. So if we just sort of try to separate these things and tease them out a little bit and look at them uh, individually, discreetly, we can see that there's no real reason why having interest rates go up should make you know the toothbrush we buy at Target cost less. If anything, it should make it cost more. Hmm. Well, okay, so I, I guess that makes sense to me in the sense that the boom-bust cycle, what it really does is it affects the higher, or was it the lower? Yeah, the higher uh, stuff, the longer-term investments, the mining and the factories and all of that, because then those are the guys who are taking out the longer-term loans who are then getting surprised when the rates are going up. But I've always been curious about this because you talk about how when they're jacking up the rate, I mean, that means the federal funds rate, the overnight banks loaning each other rate. Um, But why would they really need to force the interest rate up, especially when inflation is so high that it seems like it would make sense only for creditors to raise their interest rates to account for how much money they're losing to inflation now. So seems like the actual capitalist, you know, creditors out there would be ahead of the central bank in raising interest rates rather than behind it. Well, I think they would be. But some of them, the primary dealers, for example, um, are basically wedded to the Federal Reserve System. And so they, in a perverse sense, benefit from these lower rates because they're getting, they're parking money at the central bank um, if they need to borrow from each other, which they don't much have to do since 2008. You mentioned the federal funds rate, the overnight bank borrowing rate. Uh, They're also flush with reserves that to meet their capital uh, or reserve requirements, most of them don't really have to borrow from each other. And so, yeah, all things said, 
you know, the interest rate that, that they have with the central bank is not that important to them. What's important to them is the spread between that interest rate and what they can actually charge their customers. Right. So the, the thing is, is you can try to nudge the economy quite a bit using monetary policy at the Fed, but you can't make banks loan money. What really matters to banks loaning money is the creditworthiness of potential borrowers, which you know goes to the strength of the economy and, and credit scores and uh, savings rates, whether they have enough collateral, all kinds of things. It's not really the interest rate that determines it because high interest rates or low interest rates, the spread on what banks get money banks that deal with the Fed, the spread between what they get money from uh, with, with the Fed and what they charge their, you know, either prime or subprime customers is, is really what matters, not the, not the underlying bank rate. Mm-hmm. Well, except if, I guess we kind of conflate these things together then, like the reserve ratio and the interest rate, because it sounds like the easier it is for banks to print money, the more people they're going to find are credit worthy to take that money. Because that's their job, loaning out money, right? And isn't that what happened last time? They're like, man, we have all this, you know, virtual paper sitting here. Let's give it to people who will, you know, go bankrupt when the crippling balloon payment comes in a few years, but for right now can pay us. Well, that's great if the lender, the bank in this scenario, (laughs) sells that commercial paper uh, to somebody else before they, the borrower goes belly up. And there were lots of people who did great. Lots of banks, lots of mortgage companies, lots of mortgage lenders, uh, lots of mortgage lending agents who did fantastic in the 2000s before the crash because they were just sell, basically selling loans hand over foot. And if you got out of that before the crash uh, and never had to mark to market all the loans that you might have held. I mean, you were in great shape. It worked out just fine if you knew how to time it. But the, we, we shouldn't have these these booms and busts if the Fed can really do what it claims it can do, which is smooth out all of these cyclical business uh, problems. And, and of course, we've seen that the Fed can't do that. As a matter of fact, we're only, um, you know, about 15 years from since the last serious crash. So if you had gone back to um, the 1910s when the, the Federal Reserve Act was being sold to Congress and said, look, look, everybody, uh, yeah, let's create this new system and there'll only be a big crisis every 15 years or so. I'm not so sure that would have um, uh, sounded real good at the time. So if that's one of the main reasons to have a central bank is to smooth out these these huge economic dislocations, well, then I have to give them a, a, a failing grade on that. Well, look, and that's the same thing for everyone listening to this or everyone who ever will listen to this 500 years in the future or what? It's the story of all of our lifetimes. Boom, bust. Boom, bust. And that's what's so special about the Austrian school is You guys are the only ones who actually understand what the hell causes it and that it's the solution that causes it. What you just said, the story that I learned in junior high. Well, look, FDR created the Fed to smooth out these booms and busts. That's what people believe. Apparently, that's what people in charge believe, that that's what they're doing doing is smoothing them out. Uh, But if this is what they call smoothing them out, gee, I hate to see what the wilds of laissez-faire free market capitalism would look like. But seems like probably it wouldn't be as bad as this, is my guess. 
Well, it's very difficult as a political program for libertarians or anybody else uh, to sell austerity. It's very, very difficult because the recession is the cure. The pain is the cure. That's, that's the thing. If you say, look, go back to 2007, 2008. Look, folks, we've created this huge bubble. Interest rates have been way too low. And as a result, people have wildly overborrowed. We've lent money to all these people who really weren't credit worthy, who were maybe lying about their collateral or their income. And, and so as a result, we have all these people who are over leveraged and the housing market needs to just collapse. We need a bunch of banks and mortgage lenders and individual homeowners to go bankrupt. We need to clear all the bad debt off the books. We need to mark to market the real value of all those homes. You know, it wasn't 700 grand for some, uh, you know, little small ranch house out on the outskirts of Vegas. It wasn't worth 700 grand. It was worth 400. You know, we have to write down uh, all, you know, to have a huge loss across the economy. Um, the stock market would, of course, respond to this probably very badly. Uh, a bunch of people would have their their immediate personal lives and credit ruined. A bunch of banks would go under and a bunch of investment banks who owned a lot of commercial mortgage paper and packages would also go under. Uh, you know, this is all going to be very, very painful. But if we just allow these bankruptcies and insolvencies to happen, uh, all these banks can reassemble uh, under new ownership, new management, new boards. Uh, all these homeowners can go rent for a while, rebuild their credit and get back on the saddle, you know, this and this and that. And so we'll have a very painful correction for, let's say, 18 months or 24 months. But after that, the whole economy will be on much firmer footing to go forward. Well, OK, <laughs> yeah, you know, go run for office on that one and see how far as it gets you. So democracy encourages the political class and the banking class to continually kick the can down the road mm -hmm. to solve every crisis with more money, more debt, more credit. It's very, very scary. I, yeah. You know, I mean, when now we're in a situation where nobody knows where it all ends. Right. You know, this is, again, this is how I learned about the business cycle in the first place and about the central bank in the first place is... Well, if it was up to Congress, they would just inflate and inflate and inflate all the time, which is really, really bad. And so, thank goodness we have this independent, apolitical Ooh. Federal Reserve that can take the alcohol out of the punch bowl or whatever at the right time. When politically, the pressure would be to inflate, the Fed can do the right thing and make everybody take their medicine. Jeff Dice, they told me. Well, look... There are plenty of folks who think that all this should just be done on the fiscal side. Uh, MMTers believe that. We, the people we used to call greenbackers, I believe former Representative Dennis Kucinich was one. And uh, the great financial writer, the great chronicler of Fed malfeasance, Nomi Prins, is one. People who just say, look, it would be far more transparent if we simply had Congress direct the Treasury to print and create dollars as needed to respond to crises, expand it, or, 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 or you know, uh, make it smaller depending on the conditions and the, the financial shape of the nation. And we don't need a central bank at all, and that this is this roundabout process of issuing treasury debt and then selling it around the world and having the Fed buy it back oftentimes from commercial banks or other investors, you know, that that's all just obscures what's really going on. And, and even from a, a more libertarian perspective, if Congress were we're charged with this. I mean, the you know who you, 
uh, you ele- whom you elect to Congress every two years is a lot more visible than to, to most people than what the Fed's doing. So if all of a sudden prices went through the roof, you could you could blame your Congress critter. So there's there's an argument that all this would actually be more uh, transparent and and more understandable to average people mm-hmm. if if we simply did this using fiscal policy alone and there wasn't any monetary policy. Hey man, you guys should all sign up for the Libertarian Institute's email list. Will Porter's been putting together this great newsletter every week. And all you got to do is go to the bottom of the page at libertarianinstitute.org and sign up there. It's real dang good. Hey, guys, anybody who signs up to listen to this show by way of Patreon will be invited to join the Reddit group. And I'm going to start posting stuff over there more. That's patreon.com slash Scott Horton Show. Thanks. Hey, y'all, libertasbella.com is where you get Scott Horton Show and Libertarian Institute shirts, sweatshirts, mugs, and stickers and things, including the great Top Lobsters designs as well. See, that way it says on your shirt why you're so smart. Libertas Bella, from the same great folks who bring you ammo.com for all your ammunition needs, too. That's libertasbella.com. You guys, check it out. This is so cool. The great Mike Swanson's new book is finally out. He's been working on this thing for years. And I admit, I haven't read it yet. I'm going to get to it as soon as I can. But I know you guys are going to want to beat me to it. It's called Why the Vietnam War, Nuclear Bombs and Nation Building in Southeast Asia, 1945 through 61. And as he explains on the back here, all of our popular culture and our retellings and our history and our movies are all about the height of the American war there in, say, 1964 through 1974. But how do we get there? Why is this all Harry Truman's fault? Find out in Why the Vietnam War by the great Mike Swanson. Available now. All right. So, boom and bust ever since the Fed, before and but especially ever since. But now, isn't it right that the crash of 2020 is kind of this whole weird other animal? Because... The recession, which I believe we were overdue for a recession and a popping of the bubble anyway, and Trump was obviously desperately afraid it was going to come before re-election day. And then it did come, but it came in the form of the governors locking the whole country down. Talk about deflationary. Uh, Locked everybody in their house. You can't take out a loan that way. And so I'm looking at this Ryan McMacken piece, Ryan McMakin piece, at Mises.org, where he has the chart of the M2 money supply. And just the insane, and you can see how this is what's causing it, not what's, you know, the result of the boom and bust in the economy, you know, or at least it plays a great part in it. But you can see where, you know, he has labeled 2020 recession is this massive crash, but then it's followed by this massive and much narrower spike on the chart compared to the previous bubbles, because that was all that stimulus money that they created and pushed into the economy. And then as we started out uh, with you explaining there about how the unemployment situation is so much different in this boom-bust cycle because so many many people being literally forced out of work had decided to stay there. And so that kind of... um, In other words, it's always this government intervention trying to tinker around with the pricing structure and whatever that leads to these problems. But this, you just have such ham-handed intervention in the economy by the government here. It seems like it's making it very difficult for the thing to shake out. So they're raising interest rates way up beyond what they would want to see. 
and it is causing major crashes. I mean, in Ryan's piece, he shows what sure looks like the beginning of a major depression there with the on that line graph of that M2 money supply now, you know, going down, down, down. But then the question is, how high do they have to raise interest rates above the current rate of inflation, above the real rate of inflation or the one that they say, in order to really stop the inflation so that then they'll stop cranking the interest rates up and making things more difficult for people that way. So, I mean, can you compare it like that? Is it, you know, my on to something or missing more things about the differences and sames in this cycle versus the last one? Well, if you go back to the late 70s and early 80s, yes, people were literally paying 15% or more on mortgages. But at the same time, they were also getting 15% or more on simple savings vehicles, like a six-month CD or a savings account at the bank. Okay, And both of those numbers, the um, Fed funds rate, and the you know r roughly the average uh, interest rate that you could that a, a typical consumer could go earn on a safe type uh, simple short term investment. Both those numbers were at least five points north of CPI. So there was a positive return on savings relative to CPI of maybe five points in the early 80s when Volcker was at his at his peak. Okay, so fast forward to today, 40 years later, and you'll find the opposite. You'll find if you're lucky, you can go get eh, maybe in the in the mid two percents on a six month CD. You can now get over three on a 10 year treasury. But on something short term, it's still below three percent. But real inflation, real CPI is at least 10. So you're so you're losing seven percent just trying to tread water. So that's a big difference between now and then. I don't know how to explain that other than uh, just pure manipulation. I don't think that this is a, a, a you know, represents just supply and demand for loanable funds or anything like that. So I don't know how people are supposed to make it unless uh, they're getting raises at work or increasing their business income or whatever it might be more than um, 9, 10% a year. And that's not too many people I know. So I've seen some some uh, attempts at, at figuring out um, how much more average families are paying now versus two years ago for just their basic household budgets, gas, groceries, et cetera, a year. And I've seen estimates of like six to $7,000. Uh, man, oh man, that's, that is a lot of money uh, when you look at it that way. Yeah. Well, and I sure wonder, I can't help but wonder, not to take this whole conversation this direction, but there's an election season coming up here, these midterms, and I wonder how strong the reaction is going to be against the current regime. Not that the Republicans are any different, but that's how it usually plays out is people really react to this kind of economic pressure, right? Well, sure. I mean, uh, presidents usually do poorly in their midterms of their first uh, four-year term. I mean, that's sort of standard issue. And plus, Biden is a severely wounded uh, figure, I think. So, I, uh, look, if this election is about the economy, then the incumbent party should take a bloodbath. The Republicans have zero answers to this, by the way. I mean, it's it's absolutely uncanny how useless Republicans are at, at explaining or advocating any measure 
of markets or ownership or opportunity as opposed to uh, central planning, dependency, despondency of socialism. But that, you know, that that's what Republicans do is they blow winnable elections. But if this you would think that the Biden administration would would probably suffer politically as a result of this. But, uh, you know, we've we've got a lot of things to divert us. We've got issues like trans uh, abortion is a very hot issue right now. These terrible school shootings, gun control is a big issue right now. So, um, you know, we'll see. I, I, I really don't know the answer to that. And that's why I so desperately wish, and you're going to be mad at me, Scott. I so desperately wish we had sort of a, a, a capitalism property rights party in this country. Um, and I know, hmm. look, I know all that about the LP. That does sound like a good idea. I, I know all about the LP. Let's not bring up the LP. But I mean, the, the the truth of the matter is, is that we don't have a great system for parliamentary type coalitions in the U.S. And I know you and I are maybe not necessarily in agreement on that, but uh, we've got these stupid rules that say these, well, basically what the Constitution says is the House and Senate shall operate by the rules they choose. That's about all there it says. And so as a result, we've got this stupid two-party thing where the winner takes all in terms of running the entire show in the House and Senate, which means certain legislation can never see the light of day, which means certain committee hearings can never be held. And so it's it's really unfortunate. And I, I mean, I don't know if you've read Hazlitt on this, but I would prefer, I have big detractors on this one, but I'd much prefer a British or Canadian style parliamentary system where we could have a bunch of parties and have, uh, you know, single issue coalitions come together to elect a prime minister or something. And then they f- sort of fall apart after that. Um, I would love to see a little bit more rough and tumble. But, man, um, the, the Republicans and Democrats will absolutely drive this country into an abyss before they will yield a, a, a scintilla of political power. And, and all the incentives are there to make them do that. That's what's so disheartening and sickening uh, about our political system. So in my view, all the good and happy and true and beautiful things that are happening in this country are, are happening way far away from any of this. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not opposed to having a parliamentary type system in principle. I would worry that you get, you know, kind of the sort of factionalism that we don't want to see around racial and religious lines and this kind of thing in the ways that it's one benefit of the parties is it does make people form these coalitions. It's just unfortunate that, of course, it's the Bushes and the Clintons and the McCains and the Bidens become the ones who rule the consensus up there. That's what, you know, their corporate masters demand that, you know, this is what we get, this kind of neoliberalism, this like horror movie version of libertarianism. Right. Where it's not really socialism. It's not really fascism. It's it's sort of like capitalism in Russia. It's a bunch of corrupt oligarchs in the state that they own and bend to their will against us. You know, so um, that definitely ain't the way it's supposed to be. And I'm willing to fight about it. And as far as having a free market and property rights party, look, I mean, geez, we only took over the LP a few months ago. Give us a chance. But um, I think that. Look, the LP all along was full of people who believed in freedom and property rights and things, but I think you got people now who really want to fight about it in a way, well, in my kind of a way. This is what I love about David Stockman so much, right? David Stockman has my same, you know, let's burn the place down kind of attitude, only he understands all this stuff about money and things that I don't. But that whole, the spirit of 
like let's go get them i think it's something that has been lacking but that i think is no longer and um i think there's we got a lot of great potential built up uh in the lp right now ready to be unleashed so we'll see how it goes in the next little while okay yeah fair enough absolutely we got we got uh we got something in mind jeff dice stay tuned man it's gonna be great um well and listen you know what we're the best on the most important things so it's not like we're gonna get our guy past the electoral college probably but are we going to be able to make some headway with the American people in explaining the true nature of what's really wrong with what's going on around here? Yeah, I think it'll be second only to the Ron Paul revolution. Uh, and, and there's a potential to surpass it if we play it right. So let's see. Okay. <laughs> I can, I I can hear the skepticism. Here. Uh, well, yeah. So what's your uh, idea? You want a new party to try to do what they haven't done well, yet? Well, I, I think there is a huge anti-war, an untapped anti-war constituency in America. And it doesn't have to be ideological as much as it is just about war fatigue. I mean, you even notice with this Ukraine thing, there's fatigue because it isn't easy. And this, you know, Putin might grind for years. And now we've got a potential escalation with this pipeline. Um, you've got Putin's speech today. Uh, you've got increased talk about nuclear powers and nuclear weapons. So, I mean, um, there's there are a lot of people out there who are really war weary after Iraq and Afghanistan in this country. And so I think that's uh, that's something where there's no natural constituency for these endless wars. It's a very made up political uh, constituency in and around the beltway. So, it, you know, whoever can tap into that, I, I think... Tulsi tried to a little bit. Um, she had a little bit of her of her finger on that pulse, you know, um, call it populist um, non-interventionism or populist real politic. Uh, so I think I, I, I certainly hope that whoever runs for president in two years uh, on for whatever party is out there saying, look, right now, number one. We got to stop having these wars. We, we, you know, we we have to not have a war with Putin and Russia. We need to not have a war with China. We need to not have a war with Iran. I mean, that's first and foremost. You know, everything else is secondary to that. Yeah. Well, you're singing my tune. Speaking of which, Dave Smith's appearance on Joe Rogan the other day. Uh, I don't know if you saw the whole thing, but the clip that they used to promote it on YouTube. It's Dave breaking down the history behind the Russia-Ukraine war, and it's got 2 million views so far. So, in other words, he's catching up with John Mearsheimer's speech on YouTube already for being the person who explained this to the most people. So, um, and we're just getting going, so. Well, God forbid we let comedians run countries. You know what? I mean, that's the thing. People, some guy was attacking Dave on Twitter and going, how come... He's interviewing a comedian about this. And Dave says, yeah, well, comedians are definitely not qualified to comment on Ukraine just to run it. Everybody knows that. Fair enough, Dave. So, um, yeah, and he killed it, too. He absolutely nailed it. If you check out that one clip, if you check out, if that's the only thing you watch of that, check out that clip on YouTube. It's really great. And uh, so anyway, uh, that's one thing for me to be optimistic about is the future of getting the libertarian message out in the liber in libertarian politics. And frankly, you know, 
I usually don't say this publicly, but what the hell? It is kind of the reality of the situation, right? Is that Rand Paul refused to carry the torch. And he was the one that everybody was counting on. Hey, young Ron in the Senate. And everybody, all of Ron Paul's supporters all gave him their money and said, great, now, you know, Ron's going to retire, but we got his son up there. And his son is, of course, voted right on a few things <clears throat> and uh, done some great, you know, arguments with Fauci and stuff like this. But from 2011 on, when he took office, he did not want to be the national leader of our movement. And so we didn't have one. We went from Ron Paul to nothing. And so we had, you know, the Mises Institute, thank God, but we didn't have anything on that level to draw that attention. And I think that's what we're working on building back up right now uh, with the LP and our next uh, presidential candidacy here. So um, I think uh, there's a need in the marketplace for it, Jeff, as you just said. So let's do our best to fulfill that like good capitalist libertarian businessmen. Well, if we think about it, if markets are just another word for social cooperation, what human beings do if you leave them alone, uh, then war is, is just another word for the negation of markets. Um, so you can have war or you can have market economy. You can't have both. Yep. Absolutely right about that. And that is the message, um, you know, at the top of the priorities for our movement and for the party now. And from now on, we're against central banking and war. That's the bottom line of all of this stuff. And that's how you know whether you belong with us or not, too. Those are our priorities. So, hell yeah. All right, you guys, that's Jeff Dice at the Mises Institute. Jeff, thank you for your time on the show. Hey, anytime. I love being on the show. Appreciate you, man. The Scott Horton Show, Anti-War Radio can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., APSradio.com, Antiwar.com, ScottHorton.org, and LibertarianInstitute.org.